Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Appledore Research Podcast. My name is Robert Curran, Consulting Analyst with Appledore. As ever, we're here to share insights on the transformation of telecom in the era of cloud, network automation, and AI. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Now, enjoy the show. Today's podcast is a conversation between two people who know more about the assurance and test market than most. Appledore's own Patrick Kelly and Steve Douglas of Spirant. The discussion starts in 5G, but with two such experienced telecom professionals, it quickly gets into a much wider range of related areas. Monetization, supply chains, open RAN, AI, private networks, fixed wireless access, gaming, automotive, cloud. It's a real treat. The next voice you'll hear is Patrick Kelly, Principal Analyst and Founder of Appledore Research. Enjoy the discussion, and I hope we'll see you in Barcelona. Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, today's podcast is uh, going to be focused on 5G testing and assurance in the cloud era. And it's my pleasure today to have Stephen Douglas. He's head of market strategy for Spirant. Uh, known Steve, Steve for quite a, uh, quite a few years. Steve leads the 5G practice. Um, he defines the technical direction and innovation for Spirant. He's got 20 years of experience in the telecommunications industry. Steve, pleasure to have you. Yes, good to be here, Patrick. Just for um, most of our audience, I think Spirant is is well known in the marketplace, but uh, I'll just give you a quick intro on the company. Uh, Spirant's a global supplier of test measurement and service assurance solutions. Uh, it's recognized for its ability to deliver large-scale testing solutions within multi-vendor networks. Um, and so it sells to both the operators, the mobile service providers, as well as the suppliers, so Nokia, Ericsson, Huawei, um, and then key deployments at, uh, Spiron has key deployments uh, here in the U.S. with Verizon and AT&T. Um, in the 5G domain, which we're going to be talking about, Spiron has testing and assurance products for the radio, the core, the backhaul, and uh, base stations, uh, base station receivers. And just a little bit about the product suite. So um, you have lands, Landslide, uh, which essentially emulates real-world networks and traffic um, in the lab environment. Then you have Test Center, which is uh, effectively verifying the network uh, and cloud uh, transition for uh, their customers. And then um, Vertex as a channel emulator. And I think Steve uh, will cover off. Uh, there's a there's a much broader portfolio, but I'm just sort of calling out uh, the three that come to mind. Um, Steve, I just want to start. You published, I saw the blog that you published yesterday, Will Money Grow on 5G Trees This Year? Um, and I think the entire industry is asking this question. Um, what's changing and, and what are the high impact use cases from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, it's a question, you know, a lot of our customers have been been certainly interested in for, I would say, mostly throughout the last few years. And I think what's changed is 2024 really looks like it's the perfect storm of supply and demand coming together. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, we're seeing from the from the supply side, the, you know, the telecom ecosystem is now, is now pretty well in place. There's quite a number of 5G standalone networks available commercially live the non-standalone 5g networks i think there's over 300 of them globally 
and most mature markets now there's eighty percent you know population coverage with five G. You know, there's thousands of now devices available supporting five G chipsets. So there's a real healthy now ecosystem there on the supply side. And what I would say up until this point, possibly the demand side hasn't just been there yet. But now what we're starting to see is that sort of real growth on the demand side in terms of not just you and I, the consumer, but, you know, quite a large number of enterprises are really interested um, in moving beyond maybe some of the pilots and trials they've been doing in private networks. You're starting to see enterprises get really interested in fixed wireless access, which to this point has been primarily consumer focused. Um, and you're seeing sort of ecosystems grow as well around the gaming industry and the automotive industry who are now starting to move beyond just again some of those maybe early early trials to actually adopting uh, the technology in, in their commercial offerings. So I think that's sort of the movements we're seeing. I think where, where the opportunity is potentially going to be in 24, I mean, there's going to be some very basic wins or easy wins, I think, for the telco industry, and, and that's really going to be on their data plans. Um, you know, we all we all saw quite considerably large hikes in our data plans last year, really due to inflation. Um, you know, most service providers globally increased them. Um, now, the good thing is inflation is going back down, um, so that's going to bring the cost down for a lot of the telcos, but there's no sign that any of those inflated prices are going to come down. So I think you're going to see the telcos actually get a win, you know, an easy win there. But I think what we're seeing in the background, though, is a lot of our telco customers are focusing in on changing those tariff plans, adopt, uh, you know, adapting them you know, beyond um, just giving you know, unlimited or quantity to, to more focus on quality. And so looking at data ranges and speed tiers coming in um, and, and the potential that will even push some of those tariffs slightly higher. So uh, we expect sort of, sort of, you know, that, that, I would really call that a baseline win for them. Similarly with the fixed wireless access, as I mentioned, you know, up until this point, Patrick, um, you know, fixed wireless access has been a, primarily a consumer offering and it's done exceptionally well, uh, especially in North America, um, you know, in terms of the, the subscriber growth. Uh, but I think what's also really interesting about it is we, we looked across over 20 um, service providers globally who have launched it. And, you know, on average, the, the monthly ARPU is well over $49. Um, in fact, in some markets, it's well over even $80. And that's exceptionally healthy considering, the, you know, in certain markets, mobile uh, ARPU is, 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 is 10 to $15. So there's a healthy sort of opportunity there to grow that market and we're starting to see the signs now with a lot of our customers are moving beyond just that land grab getting the consumer to now starting to upsell into them with new types of packages things like security being offered to the home new types of on-demand services being offered and also that move towards the enterprise a lot of service providers i think you know i think we looked at about 15 service providers have now launched enterprise oriented 5g fixed wireless access offerings so we do we do anticipate a real you know a spurt of continued spurt of growth there. The gaming one, I think, is also interesting, Patrick. Um, again, up until this point, there's been a lot of sort of focus on, on mobile gaming. Uh, you know, real, you know, is it or is it not going to be a real opportunity? Um, what we saw last year was was really sort of three key things coming together, which are I think are going to really spur this year on. One that the the ecosystem um, around it really was. I would say solidifying um, and really taking it seriously, especially the mobile game developers who were starting to focus and design games with mobility in mind. So they were basing the idea that they, you know, their games were going to require 
um, connectivity beyond, say, in home or Wi-Fi. Uh, I, I think also what triggered that was this understanding that the 5G coverage in most mature markets, as I said, is not it was not good enough for them to, to move forward. You were also sort of seeing a lot of the regulators as well in some of the big national markets really having pro-gaming policies. I mean, the Middle East, for example, is quite a number of countries are really focusing in on attracting uh, developers, developing to try to de- you know develop the ecosystem. And the one thing which I think will be the real key for why it'll take off it's it's advertisers big advertisement organizations that a lot of our telco customers work with are exceptionally um interested in it because it's all about keeping the eyeballs <laughs> attached for as long as possible so not losing them as you move away from maybe gaming in the home to to to, to a mobile environment so i think that advertiser interest is really where the money's going to you know really stem from so you know we do expect to see quite a bit of growth there and the last one is probably just is, is automotive one, you know, there's been sort of the perennial one that's been about for a while, um, you, know, you know, you know, whether it's V2X with 5G, whether it's infotainment systems, there's been a lot of work going on in this for quite a number of years. It's an exceptionally complex area, not just technology wise, but also regulatory. You know, you can't, in many of these types of offerings, you need, you know, government regulations to be in place. You need infrastructure on roadsides, which is out, outside the remit of, say, a telco to deliver. Um, but what we're seeing and what we started to see last year was coming from Asia was a, a focus from the regulator in requiring uh, 5G V2X to be part of the NCAP safety uh, standard, especially for if you wanted a five star rating. And that becomes sort of a little bit of a, a trigger um, for the industry to move forward and say, okay, uh, you know, we're going to have to actually adopt this. And we're starting to see, I mean, that's kicked off in China. We're now seeing quite a number of other Asian countries looking at implementing the same policy. Um, and that's sort of move, making the market move, move move faster to the degree we're also starting to hear or see a lot of the car OEMs um, are now actually putting in 5G standalone capable uh, modems chipsets inside the vehicles uh, starting from 2024 so i think those are all the positive moves that are sort of you know yeah. why we think you know they're going to see you're going to see some of that arpu growth hopefully and you know starting in 24 yeah i think fixed wireless is kind of coming back to it even on the consumer side a year or so ago um, here in the u.s i tried t-mobile because i switched over from at&t to t-mobile on mostly because of the the packaging um, for my cell service, as well as I was looking at the fixed wireless access opportunity, it seemed pretty attractive. So they had a very compelling uh, price value plan. The issue that I found, Steve, and this was, again, I'm kind of going back a year ago, is that the their coverage uh, in the area, even though it indicated that I would have decent coverage, uh, could not compete with uh, fiber. Um uh, or even for that matter, uh, the MSOs offering, you know, cable broadband access. And I'm just wondering if you're, you're seeing sort of a momentum shift. Uh, you're big in the U.S. market where uh, fundamentally there's, there's considerable upside. I would think that there would be there on the fixed wireless access opportunity. Yeah, and I think I think what you saw, Patrick, there is probably the evolution which we saw from the testing perspective. I remember when we were, you know, involved in doing some of the early testing around fixed wireless access out in the field. 
in terms of some of the you know the throughputs that were being able to be delivered to the home um, and the consistency of them you know was 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 pretty pretty poor to be honest um you know in terms mm. of it wasn't very competitive to to sort of to, in any way to cable at that time uh, and also the business case didn't really stack up at that point either because the the distance to the home that the uh the towers needed to be to actually provide, you know, you know, coverage meant that it was limited to how many homes they could cover. I think right. what we started to see over over an eighteen month period, especially also through the COVID period, was this really big focus on optimizing uh, the radio and the CPE devices, you know, those those home devices to to give better uh, better coverage, better throughput. Uh, and we started seeing speeds certainly consistently in the last range of testing we did last year, which were. Uh, comparable if not better than cable in most markets um, and also the consistency level uh, but also the distance away from the towers um, you know that you could actually host it and that became you know really 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 critical because they could for many service providers it meant that they didn't either have to install new towers or they you know they could simply use already uh, macro infrastructure that was out there so I think I think that's what we where we started to see that sort of change in dynamic um, coming coming along. Also, what was interesting, one of our customers, and I obviously can't I can't share which, but um, had a did a survey, um, a consumer survey um, about you know what did the, the home user really want, and you know a lot of the time that market has been driven by you know you know speed being the big marketing buzzword, but actually what they discovered was it was. Um, it was really quality was what the what the consumers okay. were asking for. They were asking right. for you know they, they wanted their services. You know the kids playing specific games or using social media that they could have multiple people using it. And in fact, a real interesting one was they wanted to be able to move the CPE device about the home at any given you know easily. They could you know shift it here to there, and, and not about because they wanted to move it for better coverage, just because they were maybe reconfiguring their home and they didn't want it sitting at a certain location. And they just wanted to make sure if they could do that, would they get the same quality? So quality suddenly became this real interesting, I, I think, opportunity. And I think that's what we're starting to see now with a lot of our telco customers. They're focusing in now, okay, if it's all about quality, uh, what could we offer additional uh, in terms of a service to to, uh, to our fixed wireless customers um, to possibly then hopefully attract higher ARPU from them. Yeah. Let me switch gears a little bit, Steve. Um, Spirant publishes a 5G report every year. I know you're actively involved in that. Um, where are we on the 5G standalone adoption curve today? And if you were to name some service providers, some mobile operators that are leading the market, who would they be? And I'll just add one more question, which is, you know, a lot of discussion, at least over the last uh, few years around 5G standalone, it's adopt, adoption, but now you have 5G advanced. If you want to kind of uh, compare and contrast, I know that's a little bit further out on the horizon. Yeah, a great question on it. I mean, there's no doubt 2023, Patrick, was a, slug, a sluggish year for 5G standalone for, for quite a number of reasons. It was obviously the the macroeconomic reasons put a lot of pressure on on service providers from you know taking investing in the upgrade stages, but I think there was also a technology uh, challenge for them moving to you know cloud native architectures, but also changing the way that they their internal um, teams and divisions have to operate to deal with things like DevOps or GitOps, you know these new types of software. 
uh, engineering capabilities rather than network engineering capabilities, and, and, that, and that's been a that's been a reasonably big challenge. Um, so I think you know our view was by the end of last year there was about fifty one um, commercially live uh, standalone networks, but very few of them I would say out of that fifty one had had any real serious coverage at that point, and maybe a few of them did um, in China for, or sorry in, in in some of the Asian markets. Um, What's been interesting, though, just within the first month of this year, there's been, you know, already four more commercial networks have gone live, including in the US. Even Verizon now has finally put subscribers, active subscribers, onto its 5G core networks uh, in, in the commercial sense. So I think we're starting to already see the momentum move this year um, in that direction. And we're seeing a huge investment from service providers to test it. I mean, we're going to announce, I can't give you the number yet, but we'll announce in the in the 5G report quite a considerable amount of service providers we engaged with last year who were using that product you mentioned, Landslide, uh, to test the 5G core network for commercial launch this year. Um, and that's, you know, we anticipate a pretty sizable growth in terms of commercial deployments based, based on that work that was being done last year. And a lot of that, Patrick, has been driven by this real understanding that to unlock a lot of that revenue, which we've just been talking about, um, there's a lot of the capability resides in in, in having the 5G standalone uh, architecture deployed and moving to the release 16 and then gradually the release 17 feature sets, uh, which unlock a lot of those sort of uh, enhanced, cap enhanced capabilities. And I think that's where you're going to see the investments um, coming this year uh, and into 2020 and into 25 before before really 5G advanced sort of starts starts making a move. You know, there's lots of there's lots of capability there still to you know still to come uh, in terms of uh, you know reducing latency uh, for t types of services. The first waves of non-terrestrial network, the satellite capability for the um, for the the, uh, the transparent payloads, where sort of the satellites act as a relay for direct-to-device comms, you're going to see quite a large focus, we believe, also on virtual reality. Um, already, we're seeing a lot of customers, especially in Asia, um, who are focusing quite heavily around this, um, coming in sort of with some of the capabilities of higher how you can have higher uplink uh, speeds, have uh, more uh, uh, bounded latency uh, requirements around that. So I think we're going to see quite a movement um, in, in, in that regard. I think, you know, in terms of just on the advanced one, I mean, I, I think, this, you know, it's still very early if you look at the timelines for that in terms of the, you know, the release 18 features moving from the specifications to they're available both in the network equipment, also, you know, device chipset supporting them. So that's probably going to take a sort of a, you know, late late 25 before you'll probably see them come to really you know fruition but there is some really exciting stuff there which is being looked at i mean we're already seeing requests coming in for things like enhanced positioning so um there's an opportunity to actually have positioning technology down to less than 10 centimeters for indoor and outdoor which is seen as a huge opportunity for new types of services the whole time sense uh time sensitive networking for the industrial sector um, there's a big sort of focus area within within it there where you're seeing a lot of early activity and trying to test that. And of course, then there's AI, um, which probably is the is the big sort of I would say pathway capability towards six G, um, which is already being looked at at the moment. Um, so there's a lot of focus there on not just I would say the AI's role within areas like say zero touch operations or energy management, but also how could it be tightly integrated into the radio. 
uh, interfaces itself, you know, to give better ways of doing beam management, better ways of right. doing channel state information <clears throat> feedback. So I think you're going to see, you know, I think those are some of the areas we're going to get. I mean, what's interesting, Patrick, just on a slightly side note on that, you know, there's, there's also a lot of capability which was being touted for 6G is actually being brought in in this wave of 5G advanced. And I think that's maybe a, quite an interesting sign of where maybe, you know, what 6G may or may not be. Um, so for, I think, for example, integrated sensing, using the radio as a, you know, to be able to sense, you know, that was considered something for the 6G world is now going to probably come in and release 19. So I think okay. the move to 6G from 5G advanced is probably going to be less of a forklift than more just, okay. a, you know, a, a gradual, I would say a gradual, just, you know, a trickle evolution into it. Excellent. Yeah. Steve, um, we, Appledore has some research coming out on the market for testing assurance in the cloud network. We'll have something out in another uh, month or so, but one of the, uh, one of the areas we've been looking at is sort of, you know, as you have this cloudification of the network, it's very disruptive um, to operators and how they run their business. Um, yes, you're going to get enormous economies of scale, uh, but at the same time, it's going to force many of these network engineers and people on the operation side to rethink how to test and assure services in the future network, uh, their future communication infrastructure. We um, we did some forecasting and, uh, you know, right now, if you look at the test and assurance market on a global basis, it's around $2.7 billion uh, globally. That's what's spent annually. And, you know, one of the interesting things, and I think you see this in your business, is the legacy, uh, if you will, probe and assurance software is in decline. So we're, you know, we're kind of forecasting over the five-year period uh, an 8% decline over that five-year period. But at the same time, if you look at cloud testing and assurance, we see much stronger growth of uh, 25% on a compound annual basis. And it's mostly because the operators need to basically revise or upgrade their tools and methods for cloud scalability. Um, you know, you, you, you talked a little bit about agile service delivery. So, you know, the ability to deliver services over a more distributed workload and then the ability to sort of dynamically adjust uh, the demands on that network. And then you have aspects around real-time monitoring uh, versus like an antiquated, more pole-based uh, data archiving method, which is still largely in place today. Um, the use of AI as augmentation uh, for things like root cause analysis. And then probably most importantly, and I think core to Spirant's business is the interoperability testing and validation, particularly as we move to open networks. Um, how, how should mobile operators think about this move from where they are today in their operations to that future cloud native state? Yeah, it, I mean, it is a fundamental change for them, as you highlighted, you know, it's, it's not just a technology change for them. Um, it's an organizational uh, change as well. Um, you know, and, and that's, but but the the benefits of it are potentially huge because you're you are moving away from um, a more rigid, structured, um, very siloed 
type of capability, which is which is or, or, or network architecture, I should say, which is by the way also very expensive to something which potentially um, is easier to automate, easier to scale, um, and potentially is more cost efficient. Um, so you know, I, I think the you know the business case side of it, you know, is certainly is a starting point. Um, for a lot of them, but all, also it's the mindset that you know, it's happening w w whether they like it or not, because you know the architecture of components like the five G core network suddenly brings in you know a cloud native architecture, so you've got to be able to adopt that. Now you can decide to adopt that in isolation, or you can like some service providers realize this is the opportunity to develop say a complete cloud native environment uh, where I could have more than just my core network applications hosted on it. Uh, it opens up the opportunity to explore, you know, do I build that cloud stack myself or do I look to partner um, with either specialists or even with the public cloud and exploit their capabilities? Um, and then you start to think about, will it also evolve into the radio networks? Now, there has been attempts, obviously, Cloud RAM has been very slow in sort of getting adoption yet, but Open RAM coming in obviously doesn't need to be hosted um, in the cloud but certainly there is a big ambition um, for at least the you know the DUCU functions to move to, to a cloud architecture as well and suddenly more and more of your network is 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 migrating into that sort of environment so sort of you know it besets you to, to get ahead of the curve there and actually you know you know put the, the, the pieces in, the, in, in place for that I think one of the key things you know we, we have saw from those early adopters, Patrick, is is that need to really focus on your people, your staff becoming you know moving from being just network engineers to to software engineers, because they're going to have to understand new capabilities. You know, in many in many cases, what what moving to the cloud also brings is this, is the opportunity for automation. You know, large scale automation. Um, and you're starting to think of new ways of how you're going to release uh, your network infrastructure, the software upgrades around that. How can you do that in, a, in an automated fashion where it gets released, gets continuously revalidated, uh, installed out back into the operational network with very limited downtime without these huge sort of maintenance window cycles that we have today. So, so that means you're sort of looking at new technologies like, you know, like GitOps or GitLab, Jenkins, all these capabilities. Do they understand the Kubernetes environments? And, and those are, you know, a lot of service providers are struggling with that today. I, you know, I, I won't lie to you. That's why in many cases, Sparrant, we get engaged as, you know, from our professional services organization to really help them around, help them around that. I would say from a test perspective, um, and I think you are right to highlight that it's you know this 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 is you know could be a very big growth area in terms of um, where that addressable market moves going forward. Is that testing moves to become continuous? That's probably the biggest change with it. You know, most cases testing is, is, is a is is a point in time exercise. You know, you do it at specific periods uh, within the the life cycle of the product coming to realization and getting launched. And then, and then it's turned, you know, then the equipment sits idle for periods. Um, in this new world, you're testing all the time. Um, you're testing, you know, pre-release, you're testing as you launch or upgrade it, you're testing in the live net and the operational network to validate the efficacy of it as changes are happening all the time. So suddenly testing just simply becomes a continuous process. And that obviously makes it more and more important. 
Uh, and it also changes the dynamic of who's consuming it. So suddenly the market changes as well. You know, the buying center is not simply just the, you know, the labs or the, the development teams. It's suddenly being used by the, the operational teams, by the engineering teams who are doing, you know, the launches. So they need something they can consume right across that. So I think that's probably the biggest change we're seeing is that sort of, it, it moves into a continuous paradigm. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, key point on the CICD, and that's something where we've done quite a bit of coverage um, as operators kind of shift to more continuous integration and development. Steve, I want to just turn to some recent events in the market. So um, trying to get your thoughts on the AT&T decision to swap out the RAM supplier. Um, and, and does that create any opportunities for Spirant? Uh, I, I I think certainly any, any chance any any let's say change now where where you're starting to see the service providers move to next generation RAM you know whether it's open RAM or whether it's virtual cloud RAM environments creates creates opportunity for us um, in, in many different ways I mean you know the the whole testing requirements around. Especially something like Open RAM, you know, where we're obviously, you know, AT and T is has that ambition of of of, of deploying, um, radically changes the architecture and what needs to be tested in terms of having these disaggregated and potentially even, you know, geographically distributed um, uh, functions where you're splitting the radio stack apart. And that changes in the whole testing dynamic around that in terms of it's not just about the interoperability of those components, which may start off being from a single supplier, but in the future could be from, you know, different suppliers, uh, right through to the whole of the performance. Can you guarantee the performance of those uh, disparate components, especially if they are geographically uh, hosted, um, where, you, where you're heavily then dependent on transport links as well, providing the relevant uh, latency and throughputs. Um, you're also seeing, you know, again, uh, the radios become software uh, around that. Uh, so lots and lots of changes potentially happening on it. The release cadence um, of upgrades and patches suddenly changes from, you know, a few times a year, you know, to, to, to monthly down to weekly. And, you know, it could even go lower than that. And so I think that just creates more and more opportunity, um, you know, in terms of, you know, where the testing opportunity resides, and and I think that also then evolves also into the to the service assurance side of it. Um, you know, one of the challenges, especially if it is, and I would say it doesn't have to be multi-vendor, but in the multi-vendor environments, is you know, is is, is unfortunately the blame game. You know, where the fault lies, um, and and you know, who, what component or what part is providing the issue. So having a way to be able to rapidly or proactively identify those faults and issues and identify exactly or isolate where they are, um, I think becomes absolutely critical. And I think we're seeing already quite a lot of focus around that and how how that could be achieved uh, using techniques like active testing, uh, which is something Sparrant sort of has been pioneering for quite a long period of time. So rather than just passively monitoring um, the radio or the network uh, using probes or telemetry data, you're actually injecting uh, real traffic into the net network and monitoring it as it moves across the different paths of components. Uh, so you get a real sense of what, I, what we would call a source of truth of what's really going on in the network and being able to isolate quite rapidly if there's any degradations. 
Uh, and I, say, I, I think we expect to see a lot more of that. We've already got quite a number of large service providers in North America who are already deploying that capability um, to provide okay. that that, le- that level of that level of visibility. Yeah, it was it was the whole active testing was um, you know there was a lot of growth in that market a few years ago. Um, but you're just confirming that the demand is still there, and you expect to see for you know continued growth in the active we- testing area. We do. I think what's really exciting about it, we're starting also to see the real interest in it also for the private networking space as well, where you mm. could have these active agents both in the on-prem network, but also uh, as an over-the-air capability on-site on, on as well, so that you could actually, you know, if you're a, a service provider delivering a private network, you could actually be able to monitor very, you know, using an active tests exactly you know how is that private network performing uh, where are any of the issues but also how are the applications and the end users perceiving it by being able to test you know over the air from agents which could be deployed on actual uh, equipment uh, that's actually deployed out in say a factory environment or uh, within say a, a seaport or something um, so they yeah. can actually really yeah. understand what the end users uh, perceived yeah. experience uh, and quality is so we're starting to see the demand demand grow in that space as well. Also, where 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 we think the future of that's going, Patrick, is very much into the uh, sort of the more closed loop or zero touch scenarios, uh, whereas more and more auto- automation and and AI powered automation comes into the network, having a capability that you can uh, continuously um revalidate or, or 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 test any you know dynamic changes which are happening on the network and then provide those feedback loops back into the into the learning or the uh, clusters so they can you can, you're either reinforcing a decision that's been or a recommendation that's been inferred um, or you're or you're updating the training data uh, you know with more relevant yeah. information of why yeah. that maybe wasn't a good decision Steve, just to follow up um, around open ran uh, I know you know if you kind of look at the at t deal, um, and we've written about this, uh, you know, we don't see the dynamics change a whole lot um, in terms of the new entrants uh, potentially making their way in. But just in the wider market, so, you know, if you look at the Open RAN ecosystem and some of the more prominent suppliers, i.e. Samsung and, and you've got Mavenir, um, you know, when you have... Uh, many more suppliers in that RAN environment. Um, does that sort of change the growth projector, uh, trajectory for Spirant? Um, or do you sort of say, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it, you know, the net net to our business is we don't care because we're just doing all the interoperability testing. I would think that with more suppliers, it would generate more demand um, for your solutions, but uh, interested in your take there. Oh, it, oh, it absolutely creates more demand because it creates a larger addressable market, especially because what you what you find is a lot of those suppliers. I mean, if, I think with the last we looked at it, there's over 75 now suppliers within that open RAN ecosystem. Now, not all of them provide an end-to-end offering, and, and, that, and that even changes the dynamic then or the opportunity for companies like Sparrow because you've got many you know equipment manufacturers are maybe only providing say the district the du or the centralized unit they don't provide the other components uh, and then they need equipment to be able to test theirs in isolation so we're having to come in and say emulate the rest of the the open run radio network for them you've got the chipset ecosystem which is growing now rapidly around it as well 
because of this need for more obviously the desire is not to require proprietary silicone which has been the way you know to date with many of the traditional radio suppliers so there's a whole opportunity there how are we going to actually be able to demonstrate and test these uh, advances in silicon or acceleration technologies can actually deliver on that and that's triggering a whole wave of new opportunity uh, within that space you, you also as i said you suddenly have the whole uh, transport infrastructure side of it patrick which maybe gets forget forgot about a little bit but you know one of the fundamental parts of open ran was moving away from the proprietary cipri interface to eCIPRI. And suddenly you have an Ethernet transport capability. You suddenly have a, an architecture which can be split across multiple geographic locations. Suddenly you've got a lot of the testing requirements of the transport infrastructure uh, that are required in terms of the not only the performance in terms of the throughput, but in terms of the lossiness, the, the latency, the time synchronization across it. So it just suddenly transforms the opportunity to you've got just a, a larger addressable addressable market. I think what's really interesting also is that your customer um, is no longer just maybe your network equipment manufacturer. A lot of the service providers and even the large system integrators are building out the capability themselves to actually test it because they sometimes feel that they have to be the provider of the end-to-end system. Um, So they need to stitch it. They are going to take multiple vendors. They need to be able to stitch it together. And that also then triggers these opportunities where they're developing their own test beds and labs where they need to be able to test as they bring in these new uh, vendors into the mix. And suddenly you just see the ecosystem evolve. And to be honest, I could even take a step further and say you've got the cloud providers also part of this as well. You know, most of the major cloud service providers today are looking at the opportunity around open RAN in terms of not only being able to host it, uh, but also looking in many cases to able to, you know, to, to add or, or augmented capabilities uh, for the future of what that radio network is going to look like. So again, it's, you know, yeah, I mean, this, this could be a, it could be a huge growth market for the telco yeah. or for the testing industry uh, just, just because of that sort of explosion in the addressable market. Yeah. Good, good points, Steve. Um, well, we're about a week and a half away from Mobile World Congress 24, um, as we all like plan our trip to Barcelona. One of the things, uh, obviously, it's going to be a big topic is AI um, in Barcelona this year. How is Spirant thinking about this emerging technology and what are some of the most likely insertion points in the test and measurement market? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be amazing if we got to Barcelona this year. Nobody talked about AI. I think it's going to be, <laughs> to some degree, it's, to some to some degree, it's probably going to it's probably going to deafen us in that mixture of, you know, everybody's going to have some something to do with AI. We probably need some form of AI to actually work out what's actually real, what's not. Um, I, I I mean, I think there's there's a few key things here. You know, we're Spartans looking at at the moment. Um, obviously, last year with the coming out of the sort of the lab environments of generative AI, it sort of triggered a, a global sort of a global rush um, to actually, to, you know, to, around AI, not just generative AI, but all forms of AI suddenly became, you know, mainstream attention again, and the, the telco world was no, was no different. I think what we're seeing though at the moment, for, and, and I think this is a good, a good sign, is that a lot of our telco customers are pretty pragmatic in terms of, um, about AI in terms of um, you know trying to build a business case or the use cases um, that make the most sense for them, 
um, and then trying to understand the cost benefit of doing it in terms of the specifically the, da the data architecture and management needed uh, to power those use cases. Um, and, and, I, and I think that I think is an intelligent approach because I think it's really easy to get caught up on the hype and think AI is some sort of you know magic bullet, uh, which it isn't. Um, you know, at the end of the day. AI on its own is 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 just you know nice uh, uh, analytics. It, it needs to power other processes to be to be important. Yes. So the big sort of trend yeah. that we're seeing at the moment is is really the first wave is the data architecture, Patrick. Looking at um, a lot of our you know telcos, but also our cloud customers and the data centers as well um, around what type of change in the data center architecture do we need to put in place. Or the data lake architecture that we need to put in place to, you know, if we were going to adopt AI, you know, in terms of the the, the uh, learning and the inference cluster architectures, and most importantly, the actual interconnects between them, because a lot of the time, what the discovery is, is huge volumes of data has to get moved about the clusters in real time with very low latency lossless and that's very can be very complex to do so that's triggering at the moment a pretty big wave of investment and focus around bringing sort of 400 gig ethernet and gradually even the 800 gig ethernet uh, into these environments to provide that sort of really um, high speed uh, networking uh, between the clusters uh, and, and with newer technologies called sort of a technology called rocky v2 which is really about uh, high performance, low latency uh, comms. So you're starting to see those first model coming in. The second wave, I would sort of say, is you know, where we're seeing a lot of discussions going on at the moment is how then can testing help with the fidelity of the data, the AI models? I mean, one of the challenges is data hygiene uh, or even just getting even access to realistic data. Um, yes. So yeah. if, you, if you can use, say, use, for example, that active testing, pulling test data from the, the live operational network, which is a, you know, a source of truth, just feeding that into the models uh, to help sort of accelerate the training required around it. And then continuously doing that to make sure that they can be kept current with as much data, you know, realistic data as possible. Um, it's becoming quite, uh, quite a focal area, as is, by the way, running proprietary scenarios for different operators because I think one of the big discoveries a lot of the telcos we've been talking to you know when they first looking especially when they looked at generative AI was you know if, if, if they need a large language model or they need a large model like that um, most of them today are not very telco specific uh, so yeah. how, do I, how do I how do I make it specific to my environment so we're sort of seeing well that in some respects I see that as low-hanging fruit for you Steve so if there was a telco GPT you know GPT and, you know, call it a aspirant co-pilot where you have sort of the testing methodology and the lifecycle assurance methodology in there for your, for your operator customers. If you can sort of customize something there that's useful for the guys that are doing the troubleshooting and they're trying to figure out, okay, how's the performance on the network? How's it impacting my, my subscribers? Uh, I would think that you're uniquely positioned there with the data sets that you have to have sort of that customized, uh, call it telco model uh, that, you know, uh, facilitates sort of the operational teams, the guys that are sort of supporting those uh, services over the network. No, absolutely. I mean, one of the discussions that we've had quite a, a little bit about is, is around what we would say is, is AI efficacy, you know, 
um, you know, the actual um, efficacy of some of the AI recommendations can be inaccurate, but it can be presented to you as factual. It is the truth. Um, so how do you, how do you sort of, and, and in many cases that can be down to, you know, as we've said, bad or erroneous data sets, um, which can cause that, but also it can, it can be simply misalignment between the desired business outcome that a network operator wants to achieve. Um, you know, the AI might, might develop to find something which it thinks is better, but it's not maybe optimal for the business case. Um, so how do you actually then test against that? Um, and again, that's sort of areas we've been looking at in terms of, you know, again, as I said, a lot of the testing we do today, you're really creating a golden scenario of, you know, what, what is the desired outcome of the network, how it should perform, how it should behave. Um, and then you can use that as a reference point uh, to continuously then retest any of the AI recommendations against to see is it, is it you know, is it is it meeting that scenario? Is it meeting that golden desired state? And then provide, as I said, the, you know, gradually, I think the future will be you provide the sort of the feedback loops back into the AI training to either, as I said, either reinforce or to, or to trigger potentially uh, retrainings or resolutions around that. So I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, those opportunities. I think from a perspirant's perspective on day one, though, it's very much, you know, we're looking at supporting very much building out that data architecture, helping them there, and then helping them also in terms of the, uh, as I said, especially the interconnect headache, which they've got today, and then focusing in on uh, how do we help them then train um, and, and keep the models current uh, that can then drive those use cases like you know like AI ops, which is sort of a, yeah. sort of a big sort of tr tr trend at the, trend at the moment. I think the future, Patrick, which we'll see probably um, gradually coming into it, is 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 then going to be also the evolution more and more towards the use of digital twins and and also around security. Um, I think security probably will come a lot earlier. I mean, there's a lot of our you know, we are the market leader in testing uh, security vendors' equipment. So the, the firewalls, the gateway suppliers, all pretty much use Sparrow to help them test um, their solutions. You know, we, we, we produce large-scale traffic and attack generation um, so they can actually prove that their, their policies, their, you know, are able to identify, are able to filter. They're not going to have false positives, et cetera, um, right. with their solutions. A lot of those vendors today are already starting to utilize or bring AI into their offerings. So neither, you know, they need to be tested as well to make sure that the AI um, inferences um, very similarly don't provide, you know, are able to identify the relevant threats, um, can, can make sure they don't provide false positives, make sure that, you know, any prevention or remediation that they're doing are, are, are valid. And again, the only way to do that is using sort of you know large-scale hyper-realistic attacks uh, and the behaviour of a hacker and the evasion techniques they use. And again, that's something we're you know we, we've already got to market, and we're starting to you know drive you know work more and more with these uh, uh, the providers the providers around. The, that last one I just mentioned was the digital twins. I think I think that is slightly probably further down the line. Um, I think. You know, digital twins a broad term. Uh, it means for different parts of an organization, it's it can mean a slightly different thing. You know, in right. terms of the planning planning organizations, it's more of maybe a, a very much a data driven simulation capability. While maybe the engineering and the operation teams, it's more of a, a realistic emulation environment uh, where you use the data to power it to run scenarios against. I think what what we anticipate though is in the future, we expect to see those digital twins become more and more online. 
rather than sort of offline tools where they're being okay. used but being used as an out you know as a an intermediary step between the AI recommendation and then the final maybe orchestrated uh, uh, decision in the network where they you can run the scenarios across um, and, 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 and you know safely check uh, that they're, they're you know the outcomes are correct or providing lots and lots of variations uh, to, to help make the decision making decision making smarter but I think that's a few years quite you know still away okay yeah. Steve, thank you for your time and insight on the 5G market and the opportunities in the cloud testing and assurance market. We'll see you in Barcelona in a couple of weeks. Looking forward to it. You have been listening to the Apple Door Research Podcast. Join us next time for more insights and conversation on the transformation of talent.